from the National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Today's guest is Therese burden Stelly, an assistant professor of African Studies and Political Science at Carleton College. Her scholarship delves into Black political theory, anti-capitalism, and political economy. She co-authored W.E.B. Du Bois' A Life in American History with Gerald Horn. She will be joining the Race and Capitalism Project this September as his postdoctoral scholar. Welcome to New Dawn. The state of the world is, as they used to say, is in great disorder. There are multiple attacks on communities of color and poor communities. And one of the things I thought we could discuss today is to talk about your work, particularly the work on Du Bois, but also, of course, on racial capitalism and what lessons we can learn from Du Bois that are relevant to today's movements, to today's, for analysis of the situation we find ourselves in for movement building, for analyzing uh, modern capitalism, et cetera. So maybe we can start by saying, oh, this is in fact one of the chapters in your book. Why does Du Bois still matter? I think that Du Bois matters for, um, for a number of reasons. He's obviously most well known for his scholarship and maybe also for being a founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. But I think that the main things we should take away from Du Bois's life, which, you know, spanned nearly 100 years from 1868 to 1963, and just untold amounts of world travel. The first thing is his vigilance, right? And so I think that Du Bois was always attuned to what was going on, where he was around the world, and to the arc of history. And so this accounts for the different ideologies and the different approaches that he took to really understanding what we now call racial capitalism, but also trying to understand how to build a better world. Um, I think that Du Bois also was profoundly courageous to do all of the things that he did at the time that he was doing it, I think took a, a tremendous amount of courage. He, he was shady, you know, he had a lot of beef with all sorts of different sort of scholars and, you know, historical figures, which also takes, you know, a certain amount of courage in its own right. But he always seemed to be up to the task of challenging local, national, and global structures of domination, whether it was filing petitions with the UN, whether it's organizing conferences about issues from lynching to decolonization, whether it was, you know, struggling for better schools, for better methodologies, for the systematic and scientific study of Black people. He's doing this at a time where Black humanity was still very much up for question. And so I think that courage is something that we should definitely consider when thinking about Du Bois. Um, as I was mentioning, he's, he's also very, very flexible, right? He, he never, his thought never congeals into dogma, which is why he can sort of shift seamlessly between Pan-Africanism and Black nationalism, different iterations of Marxism, um, as well as some, you know, he has some liberal sensibilities, some sort of elitist sensibilities. But to me, all of this is to the end of Black liberation and third world liberation more broadly. And so that's something that we definitely, that's definitely important to, to understanding Du Bois. I mean, he just seemed to study all the time, right? I think that his, 
he's an embodiment of what we call praxis, that he was not only just writing about what was going on, but he was actually actively engaging in shaping the most important events, debates, and conversations of his time. So that's why I think Du Bois still matters today. We'll get into his scholarship in a bit. When I teach recent capitalism, one of the emphasis when we do read Du Bois, we generally read Black Reconstruction, is his analysis of capitalism. How do you understand uh, his evolution of thinking about the relationship between Black liberation and the, the social order of capitalism on one hand, and to what degree is that relevant for today, given changes in the capitalist economy since he was active? Yeah, so I always understand when he makes the statement, you know, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. I understand that to be a statement of racial capitalism or the realities of racial capitalism. And of course, I would say as he moves through his life, class and structural and material conditions become more salient in his analysis. But even in Souls of Black Folk, he has this very, very strong analysis of sharecropping and the sort of the economic relations and the social relations that emanate therefrom. And so to me, in my theory of racial capitalism, Du Bois, along with Walter Rodney, is one of the key theorists for me, um, of course, along with Claudia Jones as well. But because I think for Du Bois, racial capitalism is at the intersection of imperialism, colonialism, racism, white supremacy and anti-Blackness, as well as capitalist exploitation. And importantly, what's, what's often left out, but coming back into the conversation more recently, is also warmongering, militarism, and the need for peace. And so to me, when you read Du Bois' writing, African Roots of War, for example, we see all of these things come together. So he's arguing that, the, that World War I was an imperialist war for colonial possession that also was racialized insofar as the, the labor aristocracy or the white working class was also benefiting from, right, from the super exploitation of black folks. And so I think, um, to make a short story long, <laughs> what Du Bois offers to the study of racial capitalism is keeping imperialism and warmongering and militarism at the center of that analysis, even when he's thinking nationally, but especially when he's thinking internationally as well. One of the key aspects of what you said about Du Bois' study of political economy was that he wasn't dogmatic. And I think one of his great strengths is that he would study, for example, the political economy of reconstruction and slavery and come to the conclusion that you talk about the white labor aristocracy in the United States, uh, white workers, he, he argued that white workers benefited from, from black oppression. So one of the, the, I think, important factors we can learn from him, both as scholars and activists, is the economy has changed fundamentally since, for example, people like James Box and others were writing about it in the 1960s and 70s, when it was still, at least the way activists thought about it, was still centered around an industrial economy. If we're going to follow uh, Du Bois's example, we would have to say, what is it about financial capitalism? How does that intersect with other systems of domination? Yeah, so I think, well, I guess I'm, a, I'm of the sort of Oliver Cromwell Cox World System School, where I think that there's always periods of financialization that permeate the capitalist system as such and that financial capitalism isn't just a function of neoliberalism, but 
what is now referred to as financialized capitalism, what I would call neoliberalization, I think that what's unique about it is the highly contingent, precarious, and flexibilized nature of labor that makes us rethink, okay, the shop floor is obviously not going to be the site of consciousness raising, right? The point of production is less salient when people are driving Uber and babysitting and braiding hair and working at Walmart to make a living, right? And so we have to think about, okay, what does the cultivation of revolutionary subjectivity look like? And of course, people like C.L.R. James, James Ford, Claudia Jones, Emil Carcabral, a number of other people were already making that point when they're including agricultural workers and peasants in their understanding of, of challenges to, to international capital. And so I think that what our current regime of work or of labor needs us to reconsider is how do you develop consciousness when work is more and more precarious and more and more people are sub-proletarianized or deproletarianized um, or working in a way that, as you're saying, is not in the industrial or the manufacturing sector. And so I think that those are things that we need to consider. Of course, again, people, you know, if we use the term black Marxism, people were already thinking beyond, these people were already thinking beyond the sort of European proletariat as a, the quintessential revolutionary subject. But I think we need another rethinking. And whether or not people agree with this idea of the lumpen, the Black Panther Party was also thinking about this as well, about the role of the lumpen, which was somewhat consonant with Fanon's theory of the peasants, whereby they sort of have the least to gain from the, the current structure, so they, they are potentially the most revolutionary subjects. Whether or not one agrees with that analysis, it nonetheless shows the ways in which the Black Panthers were working from their own particular material realities to think about what the relationship between sort of work, ideology, and struggle looked like. And they were ahead of their time. Uh, a lot of the left at the time was still very much focused on the point of production. And the Panthers were saying, we know our communities very well, and these jobs are disappearing. And as you said, people are getting deproletarianized. Uh, work is becoming precarious, if there is work at all, in some of these communities, it's certainly in terms of gender dynamics in among African-American uh, labor force. I would, I would add that another mark of this era, though, is the role that, on one hand, credit has become, and, and credit ratings has become an integral part of the economy and, and governs a lot of our personal life, and but Bond tries to put, put boundaries on it, as well as the fact that workers no longer have pensions, they have, they have IRAs, that if, if you're in the middle class and you own a home, or you know, you know, in, the, in parts of the working class still, that is now become financialized as well. So one difference is I think that financial institutions have really tied a large segment of the working class and petty bourgeoisie into financial institutions in a way that make it more difficult to raise consciousness. I think that's an excellent point. Interestingly, I've been reading this book called The Coming of the American Behemoth, which is essentially a text about the embeddedness of fascism and monopoly finance capitalism in the 1920s and 1930s. And essentially, it seems to me that what you're saying resonates with that moment as well, whereby in order for people to be able to consume, they were relying more on sort of the 
like a, a credit model as well, right? It's kind of like a rent to own type of model and that this became the sort of basis of consumption at that moment because wages were not keeping up with the pace of, of production, which ultimately, as we know, led to a crisis of overproduction and underconsumption. And this was also a period of financialization. So all of that to say, I think that you're absolutely right that we have things like 401ks and not pensions such that we're much more reliant on debt and credit as well as on financial instruments that we really, number one, we don't know about. We have no idea what's going on and we don't necessarily have control over. So that, that is absolutely, I think, another important compliment to those who do have permanent work or who do have regularized work. That is absolutely something that makes us sort of dependent as well as precarious in another way. And that's one of the reasons I think that before the recent wave of protests around structural racism against carceral state and and as well as the the disparate impact of COVID nineteen on poor communities of color, it, we also saw some organizing around sort of like debt relief too, whether it's student debt or other types of debt in places like Los Angeles. I think again, what this, you know, one of the things we'll think through is what would a just economy look like that that didn't systematically exploit not just working people in general, but also use white supremacy as, as a mechanism for further domination. You mentioned several important leaders, activists, and thinkers like Claudia Jones, Emma Cabral, Oliver Cox, etc. How do you see Du Bois fitting into the Black radical tradition? Well, you know, to the extent that we can speak about a Black radical tradition, I, I mean, I guess perhaps it's more accurate to say Black radical traditions or sort of modes of, of Black radical thought. I mean, I think that he fits in in a number of ways. First, because he is really the embodiment of this idea of scholar activist, where he sort of moves in and out of the academy throughout his, his life, of course. He goes from Atlanta University to the NAACP, then back to Atlanta University. Even prior to that, he's at, what is it, Wilberforce or Oberlin? Oberlin? Anyway, all of this to say he moves, he moves in and out of the academy, but is always engaged, always writing. And, is, and is, he sees his scholarship as a tool to sort of enact, I would say, social transformation. So that's one way in which he fits into the Black radical tradition. Another way is that Du Bois is so committed to organization and institution building. And that, I think, is very important as well. He is always either running, founding, or on some sort of board for organization. And I don't think it's just performative. I think that he really understood the need for collaborative work and the need for organizational discipline. Uh, with regard to institution building, he also, I would say, worked from, you know, the Atlanta University Sociology Lab to his, his land-grant institution model that he wanted to implement. He always wanted to build things that would help us understand Black people better on the one hand, but not just for the sake of knowledge, for the sake of improving our conditions. And I think that that's another way that he fits into, into the Black radical um, tradition. Again, and as we spoke about earlier, I also think that he is always looking at the relationship between 
the ideological or the ideational and the material, as well as the relationship between race and class. And that is manifested in a number of different ways. And he articulates this differently throughout his body of work. But he is not a sort of what they call a vulgar materialist or, you know, but nor is he just sort of entrapped in like the realm of ideas. I think he's constantly bringing these together in ways that are both illuminating, but that are also sort of an enunciation of of his commitment to to social transformation. Following up on on that, both as scholars and activists, what type of organizational and institution building should we be thinking about? You know, I always give this disclaimer when I do interviews is that I'm not I'm not an activist, not because I think, you know, not because I'm above it or anything like that. It's just I stay in my lane. And so like I'm always very reticent to make any sort of suggestions or critiques of what's happening because that's not, I'm not sort of ensconced in that. But I will say, I think the types of organizations that seem to have had to be impactful, even if short-lived, based on my studies, organizations like the Council on African Affairs or the Sojourners for Truth and Justice or, you know, the Peace Information Center or, you know, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, These were organizations that tended to be more or less egalitarian. They tended to be active and sort of responsive to things that were happening in real time. And, you know, they tended to have different types of chapters and in in their organizational structure. And, you know, they had I would I don't know about equal representation of gender, but there were there were sort of men and women represented throughout these organizations, except for Sojourners for Truth and Justice. That was all women. But these organizations, again, tended to look at tended to have a critique of sort of the the material realities of black life or of African life. And also to produce pamphlets or circulars that were accessible to just the regular ordinary population. So they, that is to say, they were involved in both political education, but also in different forms of organizing beyond just sort of abstract bourgeois meetings. So I think that those are important models for the types of, of organizations that we need. I don't think that we need more spokespeople. I don't think that we need leaders in the, in the managerial sense. I think that we need people who are actually committed to resolving some of these these structural issues and not just like running their mouth on TV. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I've been working on a paper that should was mostly finished on modes of black political leadership that looks at both sort of Garvey type of mode of leadership of having a leader, usually male, also looked at the sort of Black Panther Party type of leadership and the sort of what Gramsci called the new prince on the modern prince in terms of a, of a Marxist-oriented political parties, which were popular in the black movement, in the, particularly in the late 60s and 70s, as well as blacks working earlier in the century in the Communist Party. And we, we need a more decentralized, we need a much more egalitarian mode of leadership. One, it's harder to attack those type of forms of leadership when they're more egalitarian, less identifiable leaders but they're also more likely to be democratic and be closer to the needs of, you know, everyday people on the ground. I couldn't agree more about the type of organizations that we're going to, that that people are now building, particularly 
African-American youth, among others. Yeah, and I think another thing that we constantly need to think about is economic autonomy. So I've been, you know, I'm, I'm interested in like the Black Radical Congress, which had such great potential and I think was striving towards the type of organizational model we were talking about. Of course, there were different issues, but one of the issues from my understanding that came up was this idea of funding and whether or not money from the Ford Foundation should be accepted. And I think that we're always coming up against this issue of funding and the way, the relationship between funding and control. I mean, what we're seeing now in this moment of sort of white guilt and white tears is that, you know, money is just being thrown at particular organizations and entities to the point where, you know, they're, they are not having the same types of financial struggles now. But of course, as we know, this, you know, who knows how, how sort of, how much longevity this guilt will have. But in a general sense, I think Black institutions really struggle with how to sustain the organizations financially and remain sort of autonomous and, and to maintain a sort of radical or critical edge that is not disciplined out through grants and exogenous funding. There's an article by one of, one of my colleagues, Megan Ming Francis, colleague in the project, on the, the role that philanthropy played in shaping the, the policies of the NAACP in the pre-World War II period. It was very clear that there are at least two major risks that you're running when, when you are relying on outside funding. One is that they may decide not to fund you anymore. I think we've all been, <laughs> been in that situation, whether it's inside the academy or in organizing outside of the academy. But the other is control, which is what you were pointing to. And what she found is that uh, one of the philanthropic uh, organizations the NAACP was working with pushed them away from criminal justice issues into education. And it's not that education issues were obviously unimportant, but they absolutely refused to fund the type of work that NAACP pioneered in trying to correct extreme racial bias and violence in the criminal justice system. And at some point, organizations, we see this in, um, in donations to universities. People give them money and want to talk about who, who can be hired, what should be studied. So economic autonomy is something we've struggled with, as you pointed out, for a very long time, but something that we need to keep our eye on. Absolutely. You know, part one subset of my research or my study is on Black studies. And as you know, this issue of funding, uh, Nola, you know, Nola Way Rooks has written about it and, and Fabian Rojas and others, this notion of funding also relates to like the department versus the program model. It's related to the types of things that are studied. To me, it has contributed to what I call culturalism or the cultural turn in Black studies to the detriment of political economy. So it is, it's a critical issue and it's a difficult one because we know that because of, you know, racial capitalist relations, racialized communities don't tend to have the same types of resources and suffer from, you know, exploitation and oppression in ways that limit the, the types of resources that we have. And so it, it presents a real dilemma. And I think that one of the historical tasks that, you know, white liberals or white progressives need to take on is, you know, these sort of quotidian forms of redistribution with no strings attached. 
That makes absolute sense. And that's a model that has been a long time coming, but it's no less important today than it was 100 years ago. One of the scenes that you talk about and was central to Du Bois' work was his internationalism and his absolute focus on understanding, for example, Africa in, in the same detail they tried to understand the United States and try and figure out how those struggles link together. So what does internationalism look like today for African-Americans? I think that one of the keys to internationalism is understanding imperialism. And I feel like imperialism can sound like passe, it can sound like, you know, using Negro or something, but it's actually really important. And I think that it's coming back into our sort of intellectual vocabularies. But I think imperialism is central to the importance of internationalism, because I think imperialism, not only U.S. imperialism, but other forms of rising imperialism, is what connects people who have historically been made dependent or who have been denied self-determination. And so this, these are sort of like racialized and you know colonized people, as well as indigenous folks. And so I think that thinking internationally helps us to get a sort of a broader understanding of very localized manifestations of, of broader phenomena. So for example, when we think about police brutality and sort of police domination and, and police as occupied forces and racialized communities meant to both contain, that is keep Black people in their place, but to also keep them out or exclude them from other, other spaces. So this is sort of linked, you know, many people have written about the link to slave patrols, but it's also linked to a broader system of control and surveillance and of ideas of modernization, right? Because often ways that places in the global South will, will sort of convey their modernization is through building up their army or building up a police force. Of course, that has a dual function of beating back the population on behalf of international capital. And so, of course, these have these, you know, this is referred to as like the compradora class or the, you know, just the petty bourgeoisie or, you know, whatever we want to call them. But I think having that sort of connected understanding while also keeping a focus on the local and the national provides, it, dis it, it sort of contests this idea, number one, that we're minorities. Black people are not minorities, right? Racialized people are not minorities. We're the majority in the world, right? We are a smaller population in the United States, but a global focus, you know, gives us this this reality that we're we're not we're not a minority group. I think it also expands the cartography of struggle. Again, so when when places in Africa and in Europe are organizing Black Lives Matter protests and our and heads of state are releasing statements, it can put some pressure on the U.S. state to stop being so racist, <laughs> right? Because as we know, it was a Cold War context that put tremendous pressure on the U.S. state to end Jim Crow, along with the sort of protracted and continued struggle of people in the United States. So, and I think that Du Bois understood this, right? So when he's talking about the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, he says the South Seas, right? The West Indies, he's mentioning um, Africa. He's mentioning all of these places that have 
persons who are subjected to, to processes of racialization because he intimately understood that that is the way that colonialism and imperialism and racism and white supremacy as a structure operate. And I think that probably the contemporary scholar who conveys the importance of this more than anyone is Gerald Horn. Because if you look at all his body of work, he's talking about everything. He's talking about the Philippines and Hawaii and, you know, Cuba, the Caribbean, um, Spain, you know, Spanish, French, English colonialism and their, their linkages. And because it's the broad picture allows us to have better so what? That is to say, to have better and more refined and I think more transformative ideas of, of liberation. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the areas that we can learn some historical lessons from, as you pointed out several minutes ago, imperialism uh, was at the basis of the beginnings of World War One. And part of that was the scramble over Africa. For example, German beliefs that they were entitled to a greater share than they had. And we're seeing a new scramble for Africa now, a new, new imperialist scramble for Africa around questions of food security, with a massive amount of land being bought up in several different African countries for imperial, new, sometimes new imperial powers wanting to have food security, also in terms of trying to guarantee certain mineral resources um, vital to a military, high-tech military technologies. So there are some parallels to previous periods of uh, imperialist expansion and conflict. Another connection that you alluded to is that the militarization we see in that is massively found in many imperial armies is being felt on the streets during our protests as we see, as you pointed out, the massive use of surveillance, the militarization of the of police forces throughout the United States and elsewhere. So that the same, the same type of oppressive tactics used in Minneapolis or Seattle are also being used throughout areas that were previous colonized or under various types of, of current imperial pressure. Yeah. So one of my, my close comrades who's finishing up his PhD at Yale, Gabriel Kutipa Zorn, actually does research on Israel-Palestine. And, you know, he does a lot of work in activism around Palestine in particular. And he, he mentioned something called gunk water. Gunk water is something that when it's put onto protesters, you cannot get the smell off. And it smells like dead bodies and rotting flesh. And that this was a sort of biological weapon that was exported from Israel. And now other nations, including the United States, are buying it up. And you also need a special type of soap to get the smell off. And so to your point, this, this is just one example. Also, I think that U.S. police were being trained by Israeli police or vice versa, something like this. And so this just shows the sort of circulations of, of tactics of repression, um, not to mention all of the, the, the funding sources. So we see these private security firms like Blackwater being deployed in the global south to, again, defend global capital against ordinary citizens. So the issue of policing, I think we can think about it as specifically a sort of a, a form of racism, as well as a form of class warfare, which is often left out of that narrative. But we can also think about it again as a form of 
number one, empire, you know, the as as US imperialism reaches its asymptote, it's turning in on itself, but also as one part of this whole sort of network and circulation of of violence and repression in the service of the redistribution of wealth upwardly. That makes sense. Um, one of the work, works uh, by Hannah Pell, her recent book, talks about how Western and particularly American companies in places like cent- Central Africa have like 25 and 50 year contracts that protect the corporations from any democratic change that would make them lose profits. In other words, if you pass an environmental law that costs us $50 million a year, you, the government, have to pay $50 million to our company to make up for our lost profits. And of course, that, as you pointed out, really gives rise to what has been called a comprador class, that the, the local government becomes an effective tool to discipline democratic forces within the country in, in the service of international capital. Absolutely. And, you know, this is this is what is it? Old wine in a new bottle or whatever. This is, of course, the basis of dependency of underdevelopment in places like Africa and the Caribbean in, in particular. An interesting. So an interesting point that Clive Thomas makes is that whereas in sort of developed nations, economic power then leads to political power in sort of post-colonial states, especially in the Caribbean, political power preceded economic power. So that is to say that the international international capital incentivizes the use of the state as a, a sort of class building project such that the state becomes a function of class power. Well, you know, Walter Rodney argues that the state is always a function of class power, but the state becomes a method by which classes are developed which then ties these new sort of middle classes or ruling classes to international capital, as opposed to having the state sort of serve the populace. And I think that that's something that we're seeing happen continually. As uh, we've been alluding to for the last several minutes, um, Du Bois's thought um, evolves um, over the period of a very long period of scholarship and activism. One of the more controversial areas of his practice has been his gender politics. You argue that that develops also in a more progressive, less patriarchal way. Can you say a little bit more about that? <laughs> yes. Here's what I think. I think that we're in a moment when there is a conflation of theory and method and of ideology and interpretation with sort of historical fact. That is to say, there is a way in which we extrapolate particular understandings into the past, or we hold historical figures to a standard of, to a, to a, a gendered standard that is ahistorical. So I'll, I'll say that. The other thing that I'll say is, when I'm looking through Du Bois' archives, which I just, you know, as a as an archive rat, I just will go through his digitized archive sometimes. When I'm looking at his relationship with people like Mary Church Terrell, where he's inviting her to speak in 1903 and begging her participation in the Pan-African Congress in 1921, consulting for her, you know, consulting her for her expertise in 1927, and looking at the way that he's providing particular 
support for education and to get jobs for people like Ethel Ray Nance, Marvell Cook, Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther V. Cooper, and the list goes on and on. He, you know, it's, I believe that he is, he is anti-sexist. That's not to say he's a feminist and just, and I don't, I don't think that Du Bois is a feminist and to say that he's not a feminist is not a condemnation of him. Feminism is just one mode of sort of gender analysis or one, one approach to understanding sort of gender or sex equality. As early as 1915, he is dragging Kelly Miller <laughs> of Howard University, who is arguing in this article called The Risk of, Wom- of Woman Suffrage that Women pay, you know, the ways of saying women pay taxes, women are workers, especially, you know, especially black women. They are the arbiters of, you know, of culture and they are an essential, you know, part of the family. Why wouldn't they be able to, to vote? And he's, he's writing this in the crisis between basically between like, um, 1915 and 1917. So I'm going to read this one quote. He says, women are workers. Women should vote. Women are taxpayers. Taxpayers should vote. Women have brains. Voting needs brains. Women organize, direct, and largely support the family. Family should vote. Women are mothers of men. If men vote, why not women? Is there a single argument for the right of men to vote or for the right of Black men to vote that does not apply to the votes of women and particularly for Black women? Now, very few other people are saying this, right? And this isn't, this isn't, you know, this is in like the 19 teens. So to take sort of personal, it, the, the types of personal issues that Du Bois had with people like, let us say, um, Ida B. Wells, and to extrapolate from that, that he is sexist, I think is a fundamental misunderstanding. And I mean, to the credit of, you know, persons who have that, these are all interpretations, right? So my interpretation is that Du Bois is anti-sexist, but in the final analysis, we all have PhDs, we all study. So I don't know that one is more truthful than the other simply because it aligns with sort of reigning epistemology. One observation and one comment, the observation was when I was reading through that section in, in in your book, on your and Gerald's book, I was like a lot of people, I have not been in the archives. Like most people, I have not been in the archives. So a lot of the archival material you brought to bear on the question, I found really interesting and had me rethink some of what I, what I understood to be his gender politics. The other thing I would say is, I've also been reading Sadia Hartman's most recent book, uh, Wager Lives, which I really do highly recommend. And she has a chapter on Du Bois. And part of what I think it's critical for understanding his early period are his class politics. And so he can be quite harsh during the period, for example, when he's researching the Philadelphia Negro toward working class and poor black men and black women. And so a lot of his early gender politics gets filtered through the, through the lens of class and respectability politics. I think that if we read closely the work of people like Anna Julia Cooper and Mary Church Terrell, and even even Ida B. Wells in particular instances, the basis of, of racial uplift is, number one, class leadership, and number two, a particular Victorian ethos that where the burden falls on working class and poor Black folks. So this is not something that's reducible to men. So again, yes, it is absolutely a 
a class, a, a class articulation. And even that needs to be, I think that we need to understand that historically, especially in relationship to sort of the reigning ethnological epistemology of the time. But I think that Black men and Black women <laughs> were invested in patriarchy to a, a certain degree, not least because there were, you know, the idea of gender applied to races. So there were like masculine and feminine races. And so I think there's a way in which both patriarchy and this idea of, you know, propriety and chastity and frugality were a class politics that applied to, to men and women differently, obviously, but in equal proportion. You obviously spent a lot of time in the archives around Du Bois and put together this critically important book with, with Gerald Horn. Where is your work taking you now? My work is taking me in a number of directions. I, I'm just an errant person in that way, but I'm, I'm currently working on a manuscript about the intersections of, of anti-communism and racial capitalism, as well as anti-Blackness. And so I, I'm specifically linking at what I'm calling modern U.S. racial capitalism that ascends in the, the immediate post-World War I moment and the ways in which that particular, the, the conjuncture of the takeoff of U.S. imperialism, of the, the rise of, you know, in U.S. international banking and the rise of, you know, U.S.-based monopoly financial capital is sort of, in he, it's constituted by anti-radicalism and a specific form of anti-communism as well as anti-Blackness. And so the upshot of all of this is that there is no race and class debate, right? You have to understand these things together, but also a crucial piece that's missing from most of the examinations of racial capitalism or race and capitalism that I've seen is a sustained analysis of, of anti-radicalism and of, specifically of anti-communism, not just as a geopolitics, but as a, as a specific sort of form of governance and of governmentality that is meant to preserve racial accumulation. So that's sort of what I'm thinking through at the moment. I'm also co-editing a volume of uh, Dr. Percy Hinton's work along with Aaron Kamugisha. It's co a collection of Percy's works on, you know, class formation and elite domination in the Caribbean. So my contribution to that volume, I, uh, along with editing it, is um, I wrote the ep epilogue in which I think about the ways in which Percy's um, analysis of the Caribbean is the basis for thinking through racial capitalism in that region. So, and then I'm also, I've been in conversation with Dr. Patricia Rodney, who's the widow of Walter Rodney and learning from her as she, she writes her memoir. So sort of aiding in that project. So those are three things I'm working on at the moment. There's a massive projects. Um, Percy Henson was my undergraduate advisor. <laughs> He's my dissertation advisor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I don't know what, what how tough he was on you, but he he really uh, made it very clear that I had to straighten up if I wanted to be a serious scholar. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He he's a nightmare in all of in the mo and I mean that in the most positive sense. Like he will not let you get away with much. So <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that many years later, very, very, very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> one of the 
the parts of the of radical history in general globally, black radical history in the United States, uh, radical history in the United States, is the degree to which social Democrats often play the leading role in anti-communist efforts, whether it was inside the black movement, black social Democrats suppressing black communists at various points of time, or the same thing happening in, in Europe in, in the interwar period. I think one of the dangers of this period is you can see something similar happen. But could you say a little bit more about the relationship that you're finding between specifically anti-communism and anti-blackness? So I understand anti-communism to be like just the sort of 20th century enunciation of a broader sort of endemic anti-radicalism. So if you look even back to the Alien and Sedition Acts, right, this is a sort of one of the earliest forms of anti-radicalism codified into law insofar as it's meant to, number one, it's a reaction to the Haitian Revolution, but it's also meant to keep out radicals from the French Revolution, from coming to the United States, among other things. But the, the one of the key fears of that was the sort of stirring up the dissent among enslaved Africans. And so what that conveys to me is that connected to this fear of radicalism is the... So, so the fear of radicalism is sutured to sort of black unfreedom, right? That the one of the key threats of radicalism is the potential for sort of black liberation. And so, there's a way in which the discourse that develops around communists and socialists is very akin to the discourse about blackness. So about you know unbelonging and subversion and sedition and un-Americanness. And one of the key links is sort of anti-Semitism, but it's also my understanding of Blackness is as an economic function. So Blackness historically serves an economic function. And so radicalism or socialism threatens to upend that economic function that Blackness performs. So not it threatens to upend both the racial hierarchy and the economic hierarchy. This is why, you know, so I guess I'll say this is why Black people are always pushing race, are always under, are always pushing that the left understand race, right? And so by Black people, what I mean is sort of Black leftists are insisting upon things like super exploitation. And, you know, we charge genocide as a document that really articulates how it is that racial oppression, specifically anti-Black oppression, moves the condition of Black people beyond the working class. The relationship, I've always been frustrated when reading American history about how tightly linked the relationship between anti-Blackness and anti-communism has been, and it's been used in a myriad of innovative ways to suppress Black people and, and radical politics more generally. I was going to say, yeah, so one of the easy sort of manifestations of this of this is like the red baiting of Martin Luther King, right? And of course, that red baiting comes from the fact that Jack O'Dell was ostensibly a communist, but was certainly a member of the National Maritime Union, which, at least up until a certain moment, was one of the more sort of radical unions until it sort of succumbed to McCarthyism, of, of course, expelled people like Ferdinand Smith, who was ultimately deported. But red baiting is, so, so Gerald Horn talks about the connection between the red scare and the black scare and the ways in which red baiting is used to undermine or to delegitimize black struggles for freedom and equality as a sort of communist plot. 
But then on the other hand, the black scare is used to denigrate communists, not least because they have an anti-racist platform. That's not to say that white chauvinism is not ubiquitous, but at least they are one of the earliest organizations to be interracial and to at least proclaim race equality. So in this way, they mutually, like red, the Red Scare and the Black Scare, mutually inform each other. And we see attempts at that today, those, making those same types of claims, whether it's on the op-ed pages of New York Times or on the streets in, among some of the counter-protesters. Let's see how we move through that in this period. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I look forward to working with you for the next year or so, two years. This will be fun. Thank you so much for having me. One of my goals has been to be on New Dawn. So I'm, I'm, so, I'm so happy to have fulfilled that goal. <laughs> Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Race Capitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.